The following audio is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that this recording will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. Job answered, and the Lord said, I know that you sorry, and Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purposes of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that guides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Canaanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up a bird offering to yourself. And my servant Job shall pray to you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Timonite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar and the Amorite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters, and all who had known him before, and they bred with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 cows, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he, and he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karenhapu. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and poor and died. This is the word of the Lord for us today. 
Well, as Isaac uh, mentioned uh, this morning, we have got, we, we, what we're trying to do is we're trying to make clear the, uh, the big idea, we're trying to make that sort of fairly clear from up the front. So here we are today in our last message in Job and kids and, and adults, if you're writing down the big idea, there it is for you today up on the screen. God uses our suffering to help us to know and trust Him more and experience His grace more deeply. God uses our suffering to help us to know and trust Him more and experience His grace more deeply. You know, throughout the book of Job, what we've seen is a man who's endured a level of suffering beyond anything which certainly most people would have to endure in their life. That's probably a, a level of suffering that, that many of us could probably even really struggle to, to fathom the, the true depth and, uh, and impact of in our own world. Satan, you know, Satan at the beginning there, where uh, the Satan goes before God and, and, uh, and uh, he's been sort of roaming about, you know, throughout the world and God says, if you considered my servant Job, you know, and Job is this righteous man that God said he's upright and blameless. And he's a man that they have a for Dazzler. And Satan, you know, he, as far as he was concerned, you know, the only reason why Job served God and worshipped God was for what Job could get out of the relationship. You know, and Satan thought that, that Job was only in it for the material blessings, for all the good things that God gives him in his life. And Satan thought that if you, if, 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 if all these things were stripped away from Job, then Job would surely curse God to be God enabled or allowed Satan to do just that, to strip Job of everything he had, all his wealth, all his possessions, but also his, all of his children. All of these things were taken from him in a series of, of a really incredible tragedies in Job's life. Of course, instead of testing God, Job continues to worship God. Satan insisted that Job to lose his health, then that would turn him away from God. And God, again, God allowed Satan to afflict Job, didn't he? To, you know, to, to, to inflict, afflict him with, with this incredible uh, um, illness and disease that, that, that wrapped his body with, with pain and torment. But yet still, Job did not curse God. And thankfully, child, that, that, that Job did not sin with his mouth. Job, of course, was, was struggling to, to understand what was going on. And in chapter 3 and 4 of, of Job, we see Job, you know, that's in chapter 3, Job pouring out his heart, you know, just to say, you know, I wish that I had never been born. And it, we, we sort of start to get a, a bit of a window into, into Job's suffering when we read through that chapter 3 and we see that the anguish that Job, you know, expresses in his words as if, you know, if this is my life, I wish that I had never ever been born. And that, that day that I was born, that the day that, you know, that it was announced that a, that a boy had been born, that that day would be completely stripped from the rest of the day. Yes, they see, you know, Job's friends come to, uh, to offer him comfort. But as we quickly see, what, what, what started off uh, as a good kind of a uh, response from Job's friends very quickly turned into a, a debate and then a dispute between Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. 
And they were sort of all trying to get their heads around the suffering that Job had been going through and why Job was going through it. And for Job's friends, it was really simple, wasn't it? They came to the conclusion that, 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 that God is perfectly just and good in all that he does. And because God is just, God enacts perfect justice in the world and he rewards those who are good with good things and he curses and brings suffering on those who punishes those who are evil. And therefore, because Job is suffering, his friends automatically come to the conclusion that God, that, that God is punishing him because Job must be guilty of some terrible things. Now, Job agreed that God was in fact just. And in fact, God also, so Job also you know, believed that God rewards those who are good and punishes those who are evil and wicked. But the thing that Job, that he could not, that he could not admit was the fact that he had done something wrong against God, that he had sinned against God. And so he was struggling with this. And, and in that, Struggling, the big, in this big, big sort of issue that God has in his mind about God, it causes him to doubt God's goodness and his righteousness. And it results in Job, throughout the, you know, as, as we see Job sort of, you know, speak more and more through the book, we see that Job sort of starts to, to you know, lift up his own righteousness. He starts to, to put himself above God in a way. But he starts to, to get proud about his own righteousness. And he starts to question God's wisdom and God's knowledge. The thing that both Job and his friends failed to realize was that this, that the God himself could actually have a purpose in a righteous person suffering in the world. They just did not have a category for that. In fact, that Elihu begins to explore this kind of thing in chapter 32 through the 37. And so we see that Job demands an audience with God to state his case. And God, we see, shows up in chapter, in chapter 38 through 41. Let me look at one verse. And God asks, you know, Job has all these questions for God, but it is God who actually seeks to ask Job the questions. You know, instead of Job interrogating God, it's the other way around. And the questions that God has for Job are designed to get him to realize his own pride and arrogance and to show Job just how little he truly understands about God and his way. And so we come today to this, this last chapter in Job, in, in chapter 42. So we just sort of try to sort of summarize this to bring it up to speed, so to speak. And this particular chapter is you know, I'd like to have you this morning looking for some answers. Have you come here this morning looking for some answers in Job? Because they've got some bad news for you. You're not going to get them. You're not going to get perhaps the answers that you might have been hoping to find here in this last chapter. In fact, you know, sometimes we like it, you know, the last chapter of a book to sort of just bring everything together, don't we? To sort of summarize it all nicely. To, to put it up in a nice little package with a little bow on top so that we think, oh, good, now I've got it, now I understand, and it's all okay. It doesn't necessarily happen here in Job chapter 42. This particular chapter divides neatly into three sections. We're going to look at these three sections in turn this morning. We're going to start with verses 1 through 6. 
and uh, we're looking at this, and it says, Job's encounter with the living God leads him to a deep repentance. All right? So that's your first point today, that Job's encounter with the living God leads him to deep repentance. So having been confronted by God and having it revealed to him how far short that, that Job fell of, of God's glory, of his wisdom, of his knowledge and understanding, of his power, of his of his might, of his glory. When Job is confronted with, this, with, with God in, in this incredibly amazing and, 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 and powerful and, and confronting way that God does in chapter 38 to 42, Job is humble. He becomes a changed man, so to speak. You know, isn't it the case that throughout Scripture we see you know, numerous examples of people who have been given this, this glimpse, if you like, of this this image of, of God's glory, of His majesty, of His holiness, of His righteousness, and they are just completely overwhelmed by God in that way. And that the response of these people is always the same. They're overwhelmed by their sin and they fall down before God, flat on their faces, often in worship. And we see it in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is is given that picture of, of God there in, in, his, in his temple, you know, and, the, and, the, and, and, and all he sees is kind of like just the train of God's robe, so to speak. You don't need to see God in all his fullness. And the, the temple is all filled with smoke, and there's this, this, this shaking, and this, and this, this, uh, you know, this overwhelming sort of picture that, God, that, that, that Isaiah is confronted with. And Isaiah, he's just... He's, he just brought to that place where he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. He said, I am completely laid bare before this almighty and holy and, 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 and majestic and, and glorious God, and, and I cannot be in his presence because I realize my sin and my unholiness and, 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 and my unworthiness to even be in God's presence. You know, when Jesus walked the, uh, walked the earth, remember he uh, was, you know, in the early part of his ministry, he was with sure his disciples who were on the shore there, and they've been fishing all night, and he, and he gets in the boat and he tells them to put out in deep water. And uh, he says, throw your, throw your nets on, you know, on this side of the boat, and they do. And, you know, and, and they're protesting all the time, saying, look, we've been fishing all night, there's nothing here, there's nothing to catch for us. We're wasting our time. And Jesus says, throw the next day, they throw them over, and all of a sudden they've got the biggest catch that they've ever caught in their whole entire life. So much so that the nets are at breaking point, and they have to call their friends on the shore to come out and help them bring this, this huge catch of fish in. And when Peter is confronted by Christ again in all of his power and his majesty, as he, as he works that miracle, you know, Peter, before the Lord says, Lord, depart from me, for I am a John in Revelation chapter 1, where he's confronted again by this glorious and majestic vision of, of the risen Lord Jesus Christ in all of his majesty, he falls down as one As we see this and as we look at the reading of the scripture, we see Job as he's confronted with God here. We see it's only as a person is confronted in their inner being by the truth of God and who he is in his. And his person and his character, 
that the person truly then begins to understand themselves and they see themselves in, in that proper light before God. We see really just how far short we fall of God's majesty and glory and holiness. And to bring us to a place of repentance before God. Because repentance before God is the place as that we we often think about repentance as that, that, that starting off point in the Christian journey where we need to confess our sin before God to be, to be made right with Him, to come to a saving faith in Christ to be welcomed into God's family. But we don't then often practice repentance very much after that in our lives. Repentance is that place that we need to be regularly brought to. Not just a one-off time, but daily. So we need to, to, to be confronted by a glorious and majestic and holy God. To see Him in all His exaltedness, if you like. All of His awesomeness. And for us to be to, to see ourselves in our, in our own proper place before God. We need to admit that God alone is right and that we need to turn away from our own self-righteousness and self-rule and obey God and submit to Him. Because that is the place where we find real freedom. That is the place where we find real peace. And that is the place where we find proper joy in our lives. When we realize who we are before God, In this passage, Job admits, or he confesses, if you like, three things about God. And in this, we see what true repentance really, uh, really is all about. The first thing that Job confesses is this, is that God alone is sovereign. God has the right to do whatever He pleases and whatever He determines according to His will. And God promises that what He does determine will be accomplished. Listen to what God says in verse 2. I know. That word know is no longer an intellectual knowledge. It is now an experiential knowledge in God's life. He says, I now know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, can be altered, can be changed, can be brought to nothing. What Job realized here is that it is ultimately our way which must bend before God's way, not the other way around. Sadly, today we see too often people wanting to, to bend God's way to their own way, to man's way, to man's wisdom, to deny God's wisdom, to deny His knowledge, to deny His authority and His sovereignty and instead to put themselves in that place of absolute rule and authority in their own life. But that is not our place. That is not what, we call, what is required of us when it comes to our relationship with God. 
God alone is sovereign in all things. Not only that, God's wisdom makes human wisdom look like ignorance. You see that in verse 3 where Job said, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Like we must not, in a sense, not to be, to try, not, not to understand God in His ways through the filter of our own experience. But rather our experience, our, our life experience and, you know, and, and how we do this, we need to, to filter that instead through God's Word and through God's truth. Now when we, when we hear people say that God is unloving and unjust, oftentimes we say that because that's what we believe, because we're filtering God through our experience, through our own wisdom, through our own understanding and knowledge. And instead, what we need to be doing is doing it the other way around. We need to filter our experience through God's knowledge and wisdom. And so when something may not, you know, when God appears to be unloving and unjust, God isn't, isn't that. Because His Word says that He's not. Instead, we need to admit our own ignorance in God's eternal purposes. As we saw last week, we must never think that we know better than God. But how many times today do we do that? How many times today do we see people, you know, sort of start to, you know, press God into their own mold? To press God into their own way, to fit God into their lives rather than, than our lives mold and be bent, you know, into God's way. The first thing Job confesses is that exalting his own wisdom above God, Job realizes the extent of his sin. Job says in verses 46. You know, he repeats God's word. He says, Here and I will speak. This is God's word to Job. I will question you and you make it known to me. And Job says, as he reflects back on it, he reflects back on God's word, as he, as he reflects back on all that God has, has revealed to him, he says, Lord, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Job sees God in an entirely different light. He says, therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And it was Job's suffering that brought him to that realization of who God really is. Now, to discuss his sin before God is to realize as well that we are deserving of his judgment. Says something here. He says, he says, I repent in dust and ashes. God not only realizes that he's wrong in God's eyes, but here we see God begin to truly mourn over his sin. That dust and ashes refers actually to a, a mourning. It's this, this attitude of uh, and spirit and, 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 and posture of mourning before God. Job realizes that he has offended God. In fact, when Jesus in his sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 says, Blessed are those who mourn, 
for thy shall be comforted. That word mourn there is simply that those who mourn over their spiritual bankruptcy before God, their sin before God. And perhaps the reason for that is because we do not see God as properly as we should. You know, Genesis says that God, you know, right back in the day in Genesis 1, God says, Let us make man in our image. And as one commentator said, you know, ever since then we've been trying to we've been trying to repay the favor. Make God in our image. I think in some ways, Jody's friends have been trying, you know, even though they've been trying to get their heads around God, they've been trying in some ways to actually force God and to, and to push God into some way, into, the, into their own image and understanding of God. This is, Jody's given this, this renewed picture of God. You know, when uh, we were last year, we went down and we went on a holiday, we went to the Grand Canyon, which was driving into the Grand Canyon, sort of walking up to where you sort of, you know, walk up the, the path to where you, you sort of see it. Because you don't sort of see it from, from the road. As you're walking up there, one person sort of, I remember saying to, uh, I don't know if it was myself or all of us, like he's saying, he said, have you ever seen this before? And we're sort of saying, no, we've never seen this before. He said, when you get there, he says, it'll take your breath away. And I said, yeah, come on, it's just noise. It's just, it's just, a, it's just a canyon, how big can it be kind of thing, you know? Sure enough, you sort of you, you kind of just come over a bit of a ride, and all of a sudden it's just there before you, and confronted by this incredible thing that almost every day is taking this life. I think it's something as mundane as the Grand Canyon here in, in this world can have that kind of effect on people. Also need to time out to, to, to understand God as, you know, as, as our finite minds are able to. We need to see God in that grandeur and in that glory, in that, 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 that power and that might and that majesty, and allow God to humble us. Because we walk around as God's people with our heads up in the clouds sometimes, with this air of self righteousness and goodness and everything about us. And we push God into our own molds and we try to make, fit God into our own lives and make God into the, the person that we kind of want him to be. But God is not like that. Job became a changed man only after he'd seen God in this renewed way. And I think perhaps, you know, for us people today that that's what we need to be praying more fervently for today as a church. But not just in the church, but also in the world, that people would be confronted by the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-glorious God. That is what is going to change people in their hearts and in their lives. Not clever arguments. 
not, you know, wonderful human wisdom. The thing that is going to truly change people, a person in their heart, is indeed to be confronted with the holy, righteous, amazing, majestic glory of God. And folks, we need to be praying more for that to happen, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of God's people around the world, but in this world as well. Sadly, for many Christians today, God is just something, or our faith is just something that we just add on to our lives. And what we need is to be confronted with Christ by God's glory, to be reminded again of our promised need, to be cut to the heart as the, the people were there in Acts chapter 2 as the word of God was proclaimed. We will be brought to our knees that we might truly be found. That we might truly see God and know God. Not just, not just know stuff about God, but truly know God. Can you say that this morning, folks? Can you truly say that I truly know God? Or is your Christian faith just about knowing stuff about God? You know, having the doctrines and things just kicked off. Yeah, I know all that and that sort of thing, but not being trained in our character and in our person. See, God wanted to change Job. God wanted Job to understand, to see God for who he truly was. And so God was prepared to allow Job to go through this kind of suffering in order that God might bring Job to that point. I pray that God does not have to do that for us in our lives. But if He chooses to do that, then it is a good thing, amen? But as we are changed, we then become more and more God's instruments of grace and blessing in this world. We see this in the next section, verses 7 through to 9 of our passage this morning. But the point is that God uses Job's suffering to take him into someone who can better reflect God's grace and his goodness. Here in these verses, God firstly is angry at Eliphaz and his two friends because they had not spoken rightly about God. There were some things that they did get right, but they hadn't spoken right about God in terms of understanding God's ways in Job's suffering. Someone just check the air for me, please. If you wouldn't mind, that would be great. Something else. Eliphaz and his two friends did not speak rightly about God. In fact, God mentions that twice in verse 7 and verse 9. They had presumed to know God and to speak on God's behalf and judge according to his ways using their own knowledge. But God says, you were wrong in that. And as we ponder on that for, for a minute, we need to understand that there's a, there's, a, there's a danger in thinking that we can have this perfect understanding of God and his ways and to judge others accordingly in, in terms of our own wisdom. I don't know about you, but there are many occasions where people have advocated 
to certain tragedies or disasters, for instance, as God's punishment on mankind. But God Himself hasn't necessarily made that clear. You know, the classic, the classic passage for that is, is John chapter 9, isn't it? Where Jesus and his disciples come across this man who has been born blind, and what is the disciples' first question to Jesus? Lord, who was it that sinned, this man or his parents? See, they've got this kind of mentality. And Jesus is saying, no, that. But this is so that the glory of God might be revealed. Whatever faith we presume to know of God needs to always be tested against the Scripture, which is God's revelation to us. And we must never presume to pronounce God's judgment on things where we are, you know, we, we, we're just looking at it from a human wisdom perspective or to judge others from a human perspective because it's so easy to do. But God here, He and says to Eliphaz and his friends, God, you were wrong in this. You should never have done that. And what he's saying, we need to keep in mind that we can never, ever know the full extent of God and his ways. And so, where, the, where Scripture isn't clear, we've got to be very careful not to try and make God say things that he doesn't. But instead, he needs to remain humble and good. Which is a lesson which I think that the Job learned here in this encounter that he had with God. And we see that, you know, in Job's actions that come after this. So Job here, he acts in, with, with an incredible humility and grace in dealing with his friends. God says to Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, I want you to take seven bulls and seven rams, and I want you to go to my servant Job and, and offer up burnt offer, sacrifices for yourselves, and get my servant Job to pray for you. Now put yourself in Job's shoes for a minute. Remember what Job's friends have been saying to Job over these, over these many chapters? They've been accusing him of all kinds of sins. They've been actually making stuff up about Job, you know, in order to... to, to to, to, to make him sort of finally admit that he's a sinner before God and he needs to repent, and then if he does that, then God will make it all better. You know, they've accused Job's children. After Job loses all ten children in, you know, in one hit, one of his friends says to Job, You know, your children must have been evil if God was to bring that punishment on them. What an unkind and unfair, what, in fact, what an incredibly insensitive and hurtful thing to say to a man who has just lost all his children. These people are called Job's friends here in this, in this book. With friends like that, who needs enemies, huh? Yes. But God says, now you go to Job and get Job to pray for you. God wants you to pray for your friends. really want me to pray for these people who have just spent the last I don't know how long just dating me out and just condemning me and calling me all kinds of things? Really? Yes, John obeyed. But I don't want you to miss this either. If we look at this particular, um, particularly this, 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 this 
confession here with passion. We, we need to remember, we need to, to keep in mind here, or we need to see behind what this is, this action of God. We need to see Jesus. We need to see this, this as, a, as, a, as a precursor to, to Christ coming into our world. Because in, in Job, we see a, a righteous one who suffers unjustly and then is a mediator between sinners and God so that their, their sins could be atoned for and they could receive forgiveness from God. Job here is, is this, this kind of glimpse, if you like, of, of this perfect mediator who will indeed one day come and, and take care of all of human sins and reconcile people to God. But don't miss that. You know, the remarkable thing for me here in Job is this, that, you know, that, that he would pray for his friends, that he graciously prayed to God on their behalf. He intercedes for what he needs. As I, as I reflected on that, I thought, you know, only someone who has truly experienced the grace of God in their lives, who has, who has seen for themselves whom they truly are in the sight of God, the given sinners who have dealt in graciously by God. It's only when we understand that, I believe, that we could ever do such a thing as God asked God to do to us, to pray for our enemies. Let me do this as Bible, the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, 21 to 35. You know that he's a person who you know, he's got this incredible large debt who he owes to the, to the ruler and the ruler brings him before him and he says, you know, it's time for you to pay up. And he says, I can't pay up. I don't have, I don't have the money to give you. So please be merciful to me. And so the, the ruler ends up being merciful and says, I'll forgive you your debt. Why wait? It's all, it's all done. It's all done. And immediately this man goes outside and he comes across a man who owes him this, this miserly amount of money. And he grabs this man by the by the car and he says, Where's my money? Give it to me now. And the man says, I haven't got it. He said, I can't pay up. And so the man who, 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 who's owed the debt gets this man thrown into prison along with his family. And Jesus says, You know, there's a, there's a message here to you. But we need to, to realize how much we have been truly forgiven by God. How much of God's grace has truly been poured out in our lives. And it's only as we understand just how unworthy we are before God and how grateful God has been to us that we can then, with God's help, actually start to show God's grace and forgiveness to those around us. And I think that Job is able to do that with his friends because he understands the grace and the forgiveness of God, the extent of God's grace and forgiveness for him. That's beautiful. Have you really contemplated the level of God's grace towards you and your life? The forgiveness that God extends to you for you. Thank you.
what you're thinking of when you know when you think of heaven and that sort of stuff and what heaven might be like and, and perhaps there are things that you're that you're looking forward to in heaven. Is the thing that you're looking forward to most in heaven is to be with Jesus? Is that the thing that you're looking forward looking forward to most? Because if it's not, then it means that Jesus doesn't still have the place that these other things do. God has prepared a future for us beyond compare. That's what this passage actually says. This, this, this restoration of grace is really pointed forward to the most. We're looking forward to, to, to being in heaven with God and with all of his blessings. But God's got to be the most important thing in us. Jesus said to his followers in John 16, 33, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. In a way, that's kind of what the message of Job is now. Job has a, has a life full of trouble. But the ultimate hope is in, is in God. And that ultimate hope, ultimate hope has to be in God. Because if it's not, if it's as vastly disappointed, and we're not worshipping God as we should, if God doesn't have that place in our hearts that He does, that He deserves. It's confronting, isn't it? It's confronting. What's God been saying to you today? What's He been saying to you through the Spirit? There are things in your life that you love more than God. Are there things in your life that you need to perhaps trust God more with? To trust His wisdom and His knowledge and His way more than your own? Are there attitudes and actions that you need to repent of? Folks, don't leave those things undone. But ask the Lord with His help to help you to change, to help you to be that person who God has called you to be, who God has designed you to be, who God yearns for you to be, that He might be preeminent in all things. Jesus came and gave his life there on the cross. 
He was doing it to reconcile sinners to a holy God. So first thing, we need to see that our sin is serious. And that our sin can only be paid for in Christ. But he alone is our hope in that. But what it also points us to the fact is this. that when Jesus died, it wasn't just a reconciled to God, but it was indeed to see God glorified in our world. And so as we speak of this bread this morning, let us keep remembering that, that yes, we've been reconciled, praise God, that we've been reconciled to to bring God's glory. And so we need a bit of a fresh power that we might indeed be people committed to the glory of God in the world. Jesus said the last supper with his disciples. He said that uh, he, he invited them to drink of the cup. He said, "I will not eat and drink of drink of this cup again until I share it with you in my kingdom." That kingdom came really was inaugurated there through Christ's ministry to death and resurrection. That kingdom was inaugurated as we are now today a part of the kingdom of God. And like any kingdom, the kingdom has a king. Isn't that right? The kingdom has a king. But that king is not just a king who just rules and reigns over things willingly. He does so with a purpose, but he's a king who loves us with an everlasting love. And that's true to us for the fact that he would lay down his life. Thanks for listening to this audio from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.